I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15 as we continue in our series through Genesis. We will consider verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15 this morning. Now, while you're turning there, um, my name is Pastor Aaron. I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship here at Big Woods. I am uh, glad to be opening the Word with you this morning and eager for what God will teach us. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Your word, O God, is truth. As we come to it this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We pray and ask, God, that you would, by your Spirit, speak to each of us. Help us to have ears to hear, have hearts that are eager to respond, and hands that are ready to get to work. And we ask, God, that you would be glorified in how we take what we learn this morning and live. Speak now, your servants listen. We pray this in the name of Jesus, with great thanksgiving. Amen. I want you to imagine with me that tomorrow morning, you wake up and you read the following headline. In a stunning reversal of company policy, Chick-fil-A will now be open on Sunday. Now, putting your distrust for mainstream news media aside for a moment, you click the article with great excitement because now you can experience the Lord's chicken <laughs> on the Lord's day. Your day goes on and you don't think much of it until later that day you notice a correction article stating there was some sort of miscommunication at corporate and Chick-fil-A will remain closed on Sundays. Now, I apologize for this 
emotional roller coaster I've taken you on, but this hypothetical situation has almost no bearing on us because we don't have a real Chick-fil-A, but I want you to think about how you would respond to that second article. I'm willing to bet that many of us would, would say, oh, I, I knew it was too good to be true. For many of us, that is our default posture when we hear promises. You've been burned by your share of pinky promises, and so you've learned that you cannot trust what anyone says. So promises mean very little to you. But my goal for this morning is to remind you that God is trustworthy. We see that He makes a promise in our passage this morning that is far better than Chick-fil-A being open on Sundays. And His promises are sure because of who He is. But before we get to understanding the text before us, I think it would be helpful for us to, to remember all that has come before our text this morning in Genesis. So all the way back to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and this creator God made a very good creation with no sin and no death. He creates Adam and Eve to have dominion over this good creation. And then in a faithless act of rebellion against God, who had given them every good thing, they sin. They reject and ignore God in the world He created. They transgress the one prohibition that God gave them in an act of cosmic treason. Even though they had every reason to trust the God who had given them everything. They chose instead to trust the hiss of the serpent who, who made a promise to them that He could not keep ensuring them, you will not surely die. The sin of Adam and Eve brings death, curses, and, and judgment into the world. But God responds by making a promise. God promises in Genesis 3.15 that the seed, the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent and overcome the death, curse, and judgment that was brought about by this sin. And as the narrative of Genesis continues, we see this promise traced through genealogies and, and individuals who in small ways are fulfillments of the promise that God has made in Genesis 3.15. That is to say, the story of Genesis traces the offspring of Eve to show the faithfulness of God through generations. Genesis 5 traces the seed, the offspring of the woman, from Adam to Noah. Noah is pictured as a new kind of Adam, and, and he's even given the same commission to be fruitful and multiply that, that Adam is given in the garden. We see that in Genesis 9. Then Moses traces Noah's descendants to Abram. When we meet Abram, we're introduced to a godless man living in a godless nation to whom God shows mercy and makes him a promise. God promises Abram three things. He promises land, 
promises seed or offspring, and he promises blessing. The rest of the Bible, then, we could even probably say it this way, is about God making good on his promise to Abram in fulfillment of what he promised in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is known as the first pronouncement of the gospel as God promises that there is someone coming who will crush the head of the serpent, who will defeat sin and death. And so with each new genealogy that we encounter in Genesis, we are to trace the seed, the offspring of the woman, and ask the question, is this the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent, or should we look for another? The problem, as we have seen, is that each new figure presented as a new Adam is too much like the old Adam and fails at the task of crushing the serpent. Abram is no exception to this. And yet, God is faithful to his promise. And that leads me to what I think the main point of this passage is. Uh, And I'll just say at the outset, I I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, I've been reading a lot of kids' books. All of the kids' books rhyme I think you know where I'm going with that because my main point this morning rhymes. <clears throat> it, was a, it was unintentional. Uh, but what I think the main point of Genesis 15, 1-6 is, is this. The promises of God are never too good to be true. And when believed in faith, they are promises to you too. I want to look at this passage under two headings. First, The promises of God in 1 through 5, and second, grasping the promises by faith in verse 6. So first, let's consider, or maybe I should say firstly, let's consider the promises of God. Everyone look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward, shall be very great. I hope that when you're reading Scripture and you come across a phrase such as, uh, after these things, you pause briefly to remember what exactly are these things. It's important to read the Bible in context so that we don't come to our own conclusions, but rather we can come to the conclusions of the Bible. The things that Moses wants us to remember as he writes Genesis 15 are the events of chapter 14. And I think specifically, Moses wants us to remember Abram's defeat of Ketelamar and the kings who were with him, and also Abram's meeting with the king of Sodom in 1417. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's a very curious phrase. It's important. It's only used in Genesis twice. Both of them come in our passage this morning. But we will find this phrase, the word of the Lord came, used used many times throughout the rest of the Old Testament, always in reference to a prophet. So for instance, we would read something maybe in the book of Isaiah, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, or in Malachi, or in Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to 
fill in the blank with the prophet. But here in 15.1, it's the first time that this phrase is used. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but I, when you think of prophets in the Bible, chances are Abram probably doesn't come to mind. But when God speaks to Abimelech, after the second sister fib in chapter 20 of Genesis, God says of Abram in 20 verse 7, he is a prophet. So we may not think of Abram as holding the office of prophet, but as one who is receiving the word of the Lord and interceding on behalf of others, he's a prophet. But more important than that, more important than the fact that we would recognize Abram as a prophet is the fact that God is comforting Abram in this exchange. That God is comforting Abram after he rescues Lot becomes clear in what the Lord says to Abram. The Lord says, fear not. Now think with me for a second. What could Abram possibly fear? Well, if we remember these things, the events that Moses wants us to remember... It's likely, it's possible that that Abram could fear the coalition of kings he and his 318 men have just humiliated in rescuing Lot. It's also possible that that Abram could simply, simply fear because he's in the presence of God. Or he could fear that God is not going to fulfill the promise that he has made to him. I think any of these options could be true, but I think most likely the context of the passage leads us to see that Abram was fearing for his safety. God comes to Abram to tell him to fear not, and he gives him two reasons. God says to Abram, I am your shield, and he also says your reward shall be very great. God is promising protection to Abram by saying, I will be your shield. A shield is something that that you would put between yourself and your enemies. That is what God will be to Abram. The the second thing that, that God promises is that Abram's reward shall be very great. In Abram's meeting with the king of Sodom, Abram refuses any spoils of war. Abram refuses riches from war and and chooses instead to wait on the promise of God. And and God reiterates to to Abram that that his reward will be very great. So Abram's greatness will come from the blessing of God, not the riches of man. So I think God being Abram's shield shows that that God is all-powerful, that he is able to protect Abram from powerful earthly foes. But also God is is reaffirming his promise to to Abram, and it shows that he is trustworthy, and God does not change. This is the God whom Abram trusts. This is the God whom we are to trust. I doubt any of you here this morning have a coalition of kings who are seeking revenge on you, but if you did, I wonder, would you trust God is powerful enough to protect you from them in order that his promise to you would stand? 
And I wonder if, if you know God as trustworthy and unchanging. God is, is no fickle caretaker changing his mind on, on whether or not he will be with you to protect you. He is unchanging and he is fulfilling his promise in you. So trust him. I think Abram shows us what it looks like to trust God in the midst of difficulty. Everyone look at verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. At first glance, reading what God is saying to Abram, it may seem like Abram, is expressing a lack of trust in God, some sort of discontentment, maybe that Abram is whining and saying to God, you have not given to me what I feel like I deserve, what what I feel like you owe me. But I don't think that's the case because of how God responds to Abram, as we'll see in verse 4. But I think Abram is responding to God in in a similar way to what we see in Mark chapter 9 when when the mute boy is healed. In talking with Jesus, the boy's father, in interacting, says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think Abram trusts in the promise of God, but he has yet to see it fulfilled. And Abram is expressing himself to God by, by saying, What will you give me, for I continue childless? Abram knows God has promised him he will be a great nation. Abram knows God has promised his offspring will inherit the land. But Abram has no offspring yet. And instead of offspring, Abram's only heir is Eliezer of Damascus. And we know basically three things about this guy. We know what his name means, which Eliezer would break down to mean God is my help. We know that Abram finds him worthy of being his heir. And we know that he's not from Abram's line. He's from Damascus. But as Abram expresses himself to God, notice that Abram does not come to God accusing him of not being true to his word or saying God, you are not trustworthy. Rather, he expresses himself to God in clear terms, in light of the promise God has made to him. Abram is not doubting the character of God. He is simply noting the tension between what God has promised and what Abram sees around him. In a sense, Abram is saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. We don't know exactly how old Abram is here in this passage, but we do know in 12.4, Abram is 75. And then in 16.16, it says that Abram is 86. Uh, Chapter 15 falls somewhere in that time span. Abram could be as many as 10 years older than when he received the promise of God. So the picture that we have of Abram here in this passage is that he is hearing the promise and waiting to see it fulfilled. And and he is asking God 
to fulfill it. Abram has already heard the promise of God, but Abram does not yet see it with his eyes. And so Abram patiently pours his heart out to God and reminds him of the promise that he has been given. Abram says, I continue childless. I have no offspring. Abram knows what God has promised in Genesis 3.15. He knows what God has promised to him in Genesis 12. And he's asking God to bring it to fruition. What do you think it would be like if you and I prayed in this way? What if our prayers were marked by faith in the promises of God? What if, what if we were so acquainted with the promises of God that our prayers were driven by us asking Him to bring them to fruition? To name a few things that God has promised. In Deuteronomy 4.29, God promised that if we search for Him, we will find Him. Psalm 1, God promises blessing to all who will delight Himself in His Word. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, God promises comfort in our trials. God promises peace when we pray in Philippians 4. In John 14, Jesus promised that He will return for us. When we don't feel these things to be true, we don't accuse God. We don't come to Him saying, God, You are not trustworthy. Rather, we can go to Him and ask that He would allow us to see how He is being faithful to His promise. God is faithful even when we cannot see it. Abram waited on the promises of God, so may we be faithful to follow His example. God responds to Abram. Uh, everyone look at verses 4 and 5 with me. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. For the second time, we see the prophetic introduction, introduction that the word of the Lord came to, to Abram. But then we see God's response to Abram. And isn't, isn't it just wonderful to see the character of God? Because God responds with great care and love for Abram. Because just, just think about it. God, God could have responded to Abram, maybe more like you or I would respond, with anger. God could have responded to Abram how he responds to Job in Job 38. When, when, when Job is questioning and, and God responds to him and, and it says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Basically, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And it goes on like that for another three chapters. 
God could have responded to Abram in that way. But he doesn't. And that God doesn't do that, I think shows Abram's question is not, is not Abram challenging God or Abram uh, having some sort of distrust in God. Because in this, in this response to Abram, to Abram, we see God doubling down on his promise. He doesn't backtrack, he doesn't change his mind, but, but instead he brings greater clarity to what he is going to give Abram. He's going to give Abram a son, his very own son, to be his heir. And, and, then, and then he tells him to look at the stars and number them if you are able. God knows Abram can't count the stars. Scientists estimate that there are uh, one septillion stars. Now, I have no concept of how many that actually is. So maybe, maybe this will help. Uh, that's roughly 10,000 stars for every grain of sand on earth. Probably also not very helpful. So maybe uh, later tonight, well, it's probably going to be cloudy tonight, so it might not be a good night. Uh, at some point, we should take a church trip to Cherry Springs. I've not been there yet. It's the darkest place on the East Coast. Uh, and, and to put it into perspective, if you were there on a clear night, vision was perfect in all of this, you would be able to see one grain of sand worth of stars. Standing at Cherry Springs, you would see 10,000 stars. So how long would it take to count all one septillion? At the rate of five per second, which I feel like you wouldn't be able to keep up with, uh, it would take roughly 184,000 years. Now you can feel free to check my math. Uh, I know I have a bad reputation when it comes to math, but that's a long time. Uh, not something that Abram wouldn't not something that Abram would be able to do. But that's okay because the point of what God is saying isn't about the stars. It's about the abundance of his promise. God has promised Abram seed. Another way of saying offspring. Seed and offspring are, are those ambiguous words that can be either singular or plural. Just think of deer or moose. There's one deer or there's a, there's a whole flock of deer. Seed and offspring work the same way in English and Hebrew. So notice what God says. Your very own son will be your heir, singular. Then he says, number the stars if you are able. So shall your offspring be, plural. Were it not for the one septillion stars in this illustration, we would expect offspring to refer to one person. We would expect that God is promising Isaac to Abram. But God is showing Abram he's going to keep his promise, he will be true to his word, but there's more to it than Abram knew. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.29. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God is promising Abram more than just Isaac. And Paul says the promise to Abram applies to any who have faith in Jesus. The offspring, plural, refers to the one people of God. Those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. Those in in the old covenant looked forward to the Messiah. And we, under the new covenant, look backward. But either way, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God is promising that from Abram's line would come a multitude without number. But I think even more than that, God is promising that the one who would crush the head of the serpent would come. From Abram's line would come the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. God is promising the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, And so God is preserving Abram's line to bring about his promise of salvation. Moses traces Abram's line through Isaac and Jacob to Judah, and eventually we see it coming to David. But ultimately, to us who by faith in Christ are Abram's offspring. And you know the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And that's the right response, to praise the Lord because God is faithful. God is faithful to his promise, and our response is praise. What an amazing thing that God keeps his promise and that the promises of God can be ours. How can those promises of God be ours? Let's move to our second heading, grasping the promises by faith. Everyone look at verse six. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram responds to God in faith. We know Abram has has already done so when he left his homeland to go to the land God promised him. But here, Abram is continuing in faith. I think the three most important words in this verse are believed, counted, and righteousness. In that order. Their order is important. Belief leads to righteousness, not righteousness leads to belief. And it's also important to note that, that Abram believes and is counted as righteous before he receives the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17. God is not looking for something good about Abram or or us before he makes a promise to him. God requires only faith. The logic here actually is one of the many reasons why I'm a Baptist, uh, but if you have questions about that, come to the Q&A for the Sunday School. Love to talk more about that. What we see in this passage, though, is that Abram believed the Lord. 
And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. I think it's important to define belief or faith carefully because of how the concept has been cheapened in our day and age. Bumper stickers that say, just believe. Believe what? We don't know. <laughs> Doesn't tell us. Or, or maybe defining faith as taking the first step when you don't see the whole staircase. I don't think either of those are, are helpful or accurate in our understanding of faith because our faith is not blind. And it's more than just some sort of, of optimism. Faith does not mean that you must check your brains at the door. There is a content of faith. There is an object of our faith. There is a person of our faith, and that is our triune God. That is who we have faith in. So it's not just faith in faith. It's faith in God and his promises. We can think of belief or faith in three ways. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge is simply acquiring the facts. Assent is believing those facts, but trust is receiving and resting in those facts. If I were to build a chair and ask you to sit in it, I could say to you, you know what? I've sat in it. It holds me. And you would have knowledge. Then I could, I could sit in it to show you that it holds me, and you would, uh, you would have assent, or you would come to accept the fact that it does hold me. But if I stood up and asked you, do you believe it will hold you? You could have the facts and the knowledge, know your weight compared to mine, but until you actually sit down in it yourself, you have not rested in the facts. Abram's faith is not merely a knowledge that God is able to bless him. Abram's faith is not merely believing that God will bless him. Abram's faith is a resting in the fact that God will do what he says he will do. God will be true to his promise. Abram's faith is a settled conviction that God will do what he has promised to do. Because even James tells us that the demons believe and shudder, but we know that they do not rest in the facts. They do not rest in God's promise, but Abram does. To stick with my chair, Abram has taken a seat of faith and is resting in God's promises. And because of this, God counts his belief as righteousness. Now, how does this work? Because faith does not equal righteousness. Faith, faith is not righteousness. Righteousness is, is living according to the standard. In this case, we're talking about living according to God's law. Now, Abram has not done this previously, and spoiler alert, he's not going to do it even in the next chapter, let alone the rest of Genesis, the rest of his life. So how is Abram counted righteous? Well, the righteousness is not Abram's righteousness. 
It's the righteousness of another. God credits Abram with someone else's righteousness because of his faith. So faith is the means by which righteousness is applied to Abram's account. And this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It answers the question, how can a sinner stand before a holy God? Because God requires perfect righteousness. None of us, Abram included, have that. And yet, God counts Abram as righteous. God, God considers, God imputes, God implies. He counts Abram as having perfectly followed the standard of his law. And he says, you are righteous, which is what justification is. Justification is the declaration that a sinner stands as righteous in God's sight. And how is Abram declared righteous? Did he earn it? Did he work for it? Did he do anything? No. Abram believed and, and, and faith is not a work that, that kind of tips the scales so that your good outweighs the bad. Faith is, is how righteousness is communicated to someone who believes. Common illustration of this would be a, a cup and a straw. The straw is the thing that transfers the liquid to your mouth, satisfying your thirst. If faith is the straw, the liquid is, is righteousness. And so the way righteousness was transferred to Abram, the way it made it to him, was by faith. Paul helps us to understand this, this passage, this concept in Romans chapter 4, 18 to 25. He says, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul is saying that faith must be directed to Christ. Christ is the one who perfectly obeyed the law and has righteousness. His righteousness can count as ours by faith. So, so for anyone here today who receives and rests in Christ alone for salvation, that faith will be counted to you as righteousness. So have no thoughts that you can earn righteousness. Have no thoughts that you can do more good than bad and gain favor in God's sight. 
Don't think that you can be better than those around you and, and God will think you're so wonderful. Don't think that you can impress God. None of that will give you the perfection that God requires. Only Jesus can do that. The Lord Jesus lived a life free from sin. He followed the requirements of the law. His righteousness is proved by the fact that he rose from the grave. Death could not hold him because he had paid the penalty. Jesus is the righteous one who was raised for our justification. And he offers righteousness even here right now this morning. How can this righteousness be yours? Believe. Believe the promise of God that for us and for our salvation, he sent his son to this earth. Believe that his work on the cross is the only thing that can pay the penalty that your sin requires. Believe that nothing you can do can earn God's declaration of righteousness over you. Simply rest. Rest in Christ and find in him all you need to stand before God as righteous. And I think this glorious truth applies to all of us and the many different temptations and struggles that we have. Do you feel like you have to earn God's favor and that you need to be good enough to please God? Justification by faith says, not only is that impossible, but more importantly, it says you don't have to. Christ already has God's favor, and he will give it to you by faith. Stop striving. Stop trying to earn what God freely gives. Or maybe that's not your temptation. Maybe you think that because the righteousness of Christ is mine by faith, I can live however I want. I don't have to earn it. I can't earn it. So why even bother living a holy life? Justification by faith says to you, yes, you're right, you don't have to earn it. But it also says the holy life you live is not to earn God's favor, it's proof that you have it. God has made you righteous, now live like it. In the chapters to come, we will see Abram fail in many ways. But more importantly, we will see God remain faithful to his promise. That tension exists in our, in our lives too. We know the faithfulness of God and the sin we so often desire. But hear this. God provides the righteousness of another. On the cross, the Father considered the Son the worst sinner in the world so that any who would place their faith in him would be considered righteous. If you place your faith in Christ, the promise God made to Abram is yours. God will be to you a shield. Your reward will be very great. All that is required is faith. Does it seem too good to be true that all God requires is faith 
let me just remind you, the promises of God are never too good to be true. And when believed in faith, they are promises to you too. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We pray, God, that you would apply it to our hearts. And we ask, God, that you would help us to have faith, to live by faith, to walk by faith, to rest in what Christ has done on our behalf. Thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.